All right, enough silliness. Let's get super serious. Amen. So um, back in December last year, um, I shared a message about our church going through something. You guys remember that? We talked about a sifting that was happening. And um, who remembers that message specifically? Oh, wow. That's happy. You know, at that time, Eric, he was fighting for his health, right? Um, Marriages were being attacked. Um, Things were blowing up in people's personal and professional lives. Um, It was a really, really difficult month. It was difficult for me and even more so for those who really had to go through some stuff. And And I'd hoped, whether it's naivete or not, I'd really hope that if we had talk about it and, and, and share what the word had to say about it, that maybe we could hurry through it. And um, I'd hoped, you know, the new year is always a great time for new things and a fresh start and all that awesomeness. And, you know, so I'd, I just was hoping and praying, God, you know, let us just jump into the new year great, you know. Um, but <laughs> it didn't happen that way. <laughs> Um, you know, I was hoping that with the awareness of what was going on and what the enemy was doing, that we would quickly humble ourselves and maybe shorten the amount of time of the sifting. And now the good news, Eric recovered, right? I mean, you're about 100%, or at least 100%. Um, but for a lot of us, the sifting did not end with the start of the new year. Um, Marriages right now are still suffering. Um, People's personal and professional lives are still suffering. Um, You know, and as I've thought about all of this, I I began to wonder um, if the sifting was, you know, maybe, I, I was hoping it was on the decline, but I was beginning to wonder if it's maybe on the rise. And so a few weeks ago, um, I received a message from Michelle Hughes, and she had a dream from the Lord. And um, basically, I'm just going to read what she, what she sent me. Um, she said, hey, Tom, I woke up last night, and I wrote down a dream, and it was simple. You were with someone. I don't know the person, but they were telling you their problem. And you said to them, there's another sifting. Not sure if this is a warning dream or something to pray about, but it caught my eye, and I woke up, and I had to write it down. Well, I immediately replied back to her, and I I said that I felt like it was confirmation of what I'd been thinking about and pondering. And so, whether we are in a continuation of the sifting that was in December, um, or this is another round, Um, the enemy, I believe, is still sifting us. And so today, as I talk about this, and I realize it's going to bring up stuff, you know, we're going to talk about some ugliness, not just in our house, but in the Word, and and what we can learn from others who have gone through this. Um, I hope, though, it's going to end in very, very encouraging I believe that very much. 
And so if you weren't here, uh, for those of you who maybe don't remember what I shared back in December, um, the sifting that I'm talking about was in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31 that we're talking about, this sifting. And this is Jesus speaking, and he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Simon de- or Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And so it's in this passage that Jesus revealed to not just Peter, but to all the disciples. Because that word you, when he says Satan demanded to have you, he wasn't speaking just to Peter. That you is a plural you. And he said he's demanded to have you. And so, in this passage, Jesus is letting his disciples know that Satan has asked permission to sift them like wheat, and the permission was granted. This was not some arbitrary attack that's going after him. Uh, This wasn't one that slipped past the Lord. This was a plan devised by the enemy to sift the disciples with Jesus' full knowledge, and Satan was told, yes. You may sift these disciples. And what was this sifting? Well, we know from this story that the sifting is going to be a very treacherous and devastating night of pressure on all the disciples, and it's going to end in failure in order to prove what the disciples were made of. That's what sifting is for. It is designed to show God, us, the devil, whoever, what we are made of. And the enemy's plan for the disciples was to get them to turn their backs on Jesus so that this spiritual revolution would come to an end. And the sifting would consist of every one of the disciples, all of them being put under incredible pressure to deny Christ. And so there is a big question. The big question of sifting is this. Will you deny Christ? And the thing that's at stake is faith and worship. And when I say worship, I don't mean can the devil get you to stop singing worship songs. It's a part of it. Worship, singing is commanded of us to worship with singing. But when I say worship, worship means laying down and submitting your entire life to the will of Jesus Christ. That is what worship is. 
Worship means having a reverential fear of the Lord that causes us to bow our lives down very low in holy honor of God's place in our lives. And so the sifting we go through is designed to abort our worshipful obedience of Christ. And we know this is true because this is not the first time this happened in the Bible. We see this same sifting happening in the life of Job. Let's read about it. Job chapter 1. Starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So what we have here. We have Job, this guy who fears the Lord, and he is experiencing all of the blessings that come with the fear of the Lord. He didn't just get all of this blessing because, well, you know, he wanted it. There was something that he had. It was the fear of the Lord, and it brought this abundance into his life. And Satan sees that Job is a blessed man. And Satan also knows this, though. He knows how fickle man can be. So Satan is saying, in essence, Job, and we can include all of us in this. You know, Satan is saying, in essence, Job, will you love and worship? Will you love and worship? Only when things are good. Only when blessing is present. That's what he's saying. He's saying to the Lord, he's like, these people, they're only going to love you because good things are happening. These people are only going to worship because you're, you're making their lives easy. But once pressure comes in the form of tragedy, watch them curse you. Watch them walk away. Watch them curse you to your face. You see, worship is the number one thing at stake when sifting comes 
Satan wanted Job to curse God. And Satan wanted the disciples to curse God. And guess what? Satan wants us to curse God. Now, if we were to read, and we're not going to read the whole story of Job, but if we were to read the rest of Job's story, we would watch Job lose everything. Job loses all of his money and possessions. It's stolen from him. It's robbers come and take it and destroy it. Everything he owns, all of his money, he's bankrupt. Then Job would end up losing all of his children. They all die. And after all of that, then Job, after he loses all of his children, all of his money, all of his possessions, we see a broken man in the worst way. I mean, can you imagine that happening to yourself? Can you imagine that? And we have this man who is broken in the worst way, but yet he still worships. In verse 18, it says, There came another servant and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and stuck the, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead and I alone have escaped to tell you and then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and he did what he worshiped and he said naked I have come from my mother's womb and naked shall I return the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away blessed be the name of the Lord and in all this Job did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Once Satan realized that Job would not curse God after losing everything, everything, Satan asked to up the ante. He asked to take Job's health. Chapter 2, verse 3, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man? This is after the tragedy. Who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast. Say that. He still holds fast his integrity. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his foot to the crown of his head, covered with boils and sores here to his feet. 
And he took a piece of broken pottery, which he wanted to scrape himself as he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, How many of you going through something difficult have ever had someone give you advice? <laughs> Let's refine that question. How many of you going through something have ever had someone give you bad advice? I mean, we've got this poor guy who's lost it all and his own wife is now putting pressure on him to turn his back on God. To turn his back on God's ways. But here's the good thing. Job didn't take the bait. So here's something we can learn from Job's story. See, if, if your marriage is broken, and I know there are, we all have something dysfunctional. If your marriage is broken, if it's not working right, if it's dying, if your personal life is not working, maybe your business isn't going the way it should, if it's going to hell in a handbasket, Here's what we can learn. Don't listen to bad advice. Amen. Captain Obvious, thank you very much. And if you still don't get this one, how about the next one? Don't go looking for bad advice. Listen, we all want comfort. When we are going through hell, we want comfort. We want comfort when we go through these most difficult and painful experiences. But sometimes people in our lives, in their effort to comfort us, end up provoking us to sin against God. I'm going to say that again. Sometimes some people who try to comfort us, here, sweetie, let me make your pain better. You don't deserve this. Sometimes in their effort to comfort us, they end up provoking us to sin against God the Lord and if your marriage is struggling and maybe maybe your husband or your wife is cheating on you maybe they're lying to you all the time maybe they just decided to quit trying if that's happening and someone comes to you and starts bashing your spouse that person is in sin and if you agree, you're on your way denying Christ. I'm going to say that again. If someone's trying to comfort you in the terribleness of your marriage and telling you, yeah, your husband's a pig. I didn't like him in the first place. Who does he think he is? Or yeah, your wife's this and that and she doesn't do nothing for you or for no one. If they're doing that, they're in sin. And if you listen and you give your heart to it, you are on your way. 
Don't listen to bad advice and certainly don't go looking for it because we have this tendency. We kind of know who those people in our lives are who will sympathize because they maybe had the same problem. And here's another one. Bad advice can lead to cursing God. Sometimes this bad advice doesn't even come from someone else. Sometimes that bad advice is something we tell ourselves. We come up with all kinds of crazy ways to make ourselves feel better. We come up with all kinds of ways to justify our bad behavior, our God, I'm not praying any longer, I'm not forgiving I'm not repenting. I'm the victim here. Just watch what happened to Job and everything that happened. He still kept his integrity. He still worshiped. He still had the fear of the Lord. So in this first instance of Satan sifting a worshiper of God, we see that Job recognized the foolishness. Say that word, foolishness. Job recognized the foolishness of blaming God for all his troubles. That's what he said. You sound like the foolish ones. He recognized the foolishness of blaming God. Why did you let this happen, God? Why are you letting terrible things happen in my life? Why didn't you stop this from happening? He didn't get self-righteous, which was what he could have done. I'm not to blame. You are. I didn't make this mess. God, you let this mess happen. And, And the rest of Job's story... Is, is, a, is the story about his friends coming along and, and continuing to give him their opinion of his situation. And Job expressing his enormous grief because the man is hurting. I mean, come on, I can't even imagine losing everything like this. But ultimately, we see Job respond to his personal sifting with worship, and he refused to deny the Lord. He refused to curse him. Now, I want to go back to the story in Luke. So we've got Job sifting. I want to look at this again in, in Luke concerning the sifting of the disciples. Again, we've got Satan who is demanding to sift the disciples, and he gets permission but see, Jesus, he, as he's telling them, it's coming, guys. Bros, bra, <laughs> fam. I'm trying to learn more of those words so I can incorporate them into the message. I will do it. And it will be, it will be believable. Yeet, yeet, yeet. So Jesus is like, yeet, fam. (laughs) Yo, some shade's going to be thrown on you all tonight. It's going to be bad. It's going to be treacherous. You're not going to like it. 
Yeet. But have faith, fam. <laughs> if, if there's an adult next to you, young people who's looking confused, please inform them what we're talking about at this moment in the sermon. But Jesus is like, listen, fam, it's coming. Terrible stuff's happening. But here's the good thing. Listen. He says this. He says, you know, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned, he didn't say if, did he? He didn't say if, did he? He said, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus knows what's at stake in this sifting. Satan wants to destroy the faith of the disciples. Satan wants them to curse God and turn from Jesus. And it's the same thing for us today. It is the same problem. When we are sifted, Satan wants us to turn our backs on God and God's ways of doing things. Because a lot of us give ourselves a lot of credit or leeway we let ourselves off the hook because we go i don't i didn't stop believing in god no but you're acting like a turd (laughs) you're acting like a bleep so quitting isn't just i didn't stop believing in god it's his ways of doing this it's how he wants you to go through the sifting. It's how he wants you to handle the terrible things that are happening that matters. It's attitudes. It's thinking. I still go to church. whoop de do. I go to McDonald's. It doesn't make me a hamburger. I mean, if I go enough, I'll look like one, but but just because you came in this building doesn't mean you're a worshiper. Just because you showed up because you felt guilty you should go to church on Sunday doesn't count for worship. It doesn't. Worship counts for worship. Sitting on your seat like a bump on the log doesn't count. Engaging your heart and your mind, and your soul, and your strength. That is the only thing that counts for worship. Satan wants us to turn our backs on God. And maintaining faith in God to save us, and having faith in God's ways, is what the sifting is designed to test. When the worst of the worst comes knocking at our door, how do we respond? Now, I want to look at two of the disciples and how they specifically handled their sifting. I want to look specifically at Peter, because he's a main guy in this one. But I also want to look at Judas. I'm going to jump over to Matthew's gospel I want to go over to his account uh, because it shares a little bit more detail. Now, again, remember, Jesus warned the disciples that they would be sifted. And then Peter says in his self-reliance, 
his, you know, pride. He refused to believe the warning. Nuh-uh, not me. I'm bigger and better than that. I'll never deny you, Jesus, never. In fact, he says in, Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. What a, what a really macho, I'm going to die for you, man. Come on. It's Pete. I got the revelation of who you were first. Remember that? I remember Pete. Simon, I'm going to call you by your old name. When I warn you, I'm calling you by what's still kind of living. So Jesus knows what's at stake in this sifting. And unfortunately, Pete, in his great passion, but he was overly self-confident. He had a lot of faith in himself. I can do this. And when he shows off his machismo, he's faced with the very public correction. In fact, Jesus says in verse 34, he says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So let's look at Peter's sifting. In Matthew 26, verse 69, it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. So they've come, they've already taken Jesus. He's being tried and there, his disciples are all kind of hiding and watching from a distance. And Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what, you're, what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. Uh-oh, he's up in the ante. I do not know this guy. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly, certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And now he's ready to bring heaven down. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately... The rooster crowed. Thank you, Eric, for the sound effect. <laughs> we'll have to edit that out in the dramatic reading of it. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Peter was sifted, and Peter failed. He failed to keep his word to Jesus. He failed to stand up under the pressure. He didn't make it. Now let's look at Judas. See, Judas was one of the disciples along with Peter, and Judas was also being sifted. 
but it was in a different way. See, Judas was struggling with how in the ministry, as they were traveling and doing their thing, Judas struggled with how Jesus was handling the ministry. And specifically, he didn't like Jesus' approach to money. He didn't, he didn't like that Jesus had almost no regard for it, at least in Judas's eyes. See, Judas, he was the treasurer of the ministry, and so the Bible tells us that he was consumed with that aspect of the ministry. He's always worried about the money and thinking about it. In fact, it was Judas who complained when Mary of Bethany poured out this very expensive jar of perfume on the feet of Jesus in John chapter 21 or chapter 12. In fact, when we read that same story about the experience of the perfume in Matthew, it's the very next passage after that passage where where we read that uh, Judas decides to betray Jesus. So, so Mary came, she, she did this beautiful act of pouring this expensive oil upon the feet of Jesus, and Judas is there going, that's stupid. What a waste. We could have saved that and given it to the poor, Jesus. And so after that happens, and Jesus says, leave her alone. This was good. This, this was beautiful, and it's going to be told of her. Whenever the gospel is told, they're going to talk about this moment. So after that, you know, Judas had finally had enough. I can't take it anymore. I'm done. You're not running this ministry right. You're not running the money right. You don't care. And so we've got what happens back up in 26 verse 14. It says, then one one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. See, Judas was being sifted as well. And he also failed. And not only did he fail, but his failure resulted in a betrayal that led to the death of Jesus. Now, once Judas betrays Jesus, and he sees, and and all of a sudden he has this moment, and he has this change of heart. says then when Judas his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying I have sinned by betraying innocent blood and they said what's that to us deal with it yourself and throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple he departed and he went and he hanged himself So we've got this failure of Peter. We've got this failure of Judas. What are we going to learn from these two different failures? 
I want you to write this down or take a picture of it or snap it into your brain. Shame, pride, and repentance. The first thing that we can learn is that when we recognize our sin for what it is, when we recognize our sin for what it is, it can throw us into deep shame. And shame is something that has been around since the beginning of humanity. We can trace shame and and its connection to sin all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When the very first couple that was ever created, Adam and Eve, when they sinned against God, the moment that they sinned, the Bible tells us that their eyes were open and they could feel shame for the very first time. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, shame is a knee-jerk reaction we have when we fail. Who remembers the message I shared about the difference between misplaced shame and well-placed shame? Anyone remember that one? couple. We're getting less and less. All right, that's, that's okay. To remember that regardless of what kind of shame you experience, you must get it out of your life. It has to be gone. It has to leave. So looking back at this example of Peter and Judas, we find that Peter and Judas experience the shame of their failure, and they have this moment of remorse. Everyone say remorse. And Judas, after he betrays Jesus, he has his remorse moment. And Peter, after he denies Jesus, has his remorse moment. But here's the difference between these two. Judas is remorseful when he realizes the enormity of his betrayal, but he doesn't move, and this is the point, he doesn't move from remorse to repentance. You see, whenever the sin process, whenever we sin, the process, it usually goes like this. It goes from shame or guilt to remorse to repentance. But Judas does not take that path. Judas does not move from remorse to repentance. In fact, what we find in Judas is that Judas tries to absolve his guilt by returning the payment he received for betraying Jesus. In other words, Judas was making an attempt to buy back his innocence. And when the blood money was refused and Judas is unable to eliminate his guilt on his own terms, Judas hangs himself. 
Instead of moving out of shame into remorse and then to repentance, Judas goes from shame to remorse to pride. Judas's attempt to buy back his innocence is pride. It's pride in disguise. You see, when sin is exposed, it is very tempting to stop at just the realization and the remorse of our sin. It's very tempting to go, oh, I did a terrible thing. I realize how bad this is. And then just stay right there. And when we stop there, here's what happens. We end up wallowing in self-hate. Self-pity, self-loathing. And, and it can seem very appropriate because we like inflicting punishment on ourselves. You know, somehow, if I hate myself enough and I talk bad enough about me, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, absolve my guilt. If I tell you how bad I feel, then you can't tell me how bad I am. And, and just in full disclosure, this, you know, the, 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 the self-pity, the self-loathing, it, is, um, it happens to be one of my favorite ways of dealing with shame. You know, whether it's the shame of feeling like I'm a terrible pastor or I'm a terrible leader or maybe it's the shame of failing to love my wife the way she wants me to. Um, you know, maybe it's the shame of not being able to provide my family with a large enough home to fit all of us or have nicer clothes or even a food budget that'll feed all four of my boys. <laughs> like, sorry, baby, tonight's your night to fast. <laughs> so... You know, whatever those, those, and those are real things. I'm not just throwing out random, I mean, I'm talking, this is stuff that I, you know, so I, I deal with. And, and so I love to stop at the remorse and the realization sometimes. And instead of moving out of that, I stay in pride, self-pity. Oh, I sacrificed so much to be doing what I'm doing. I could have went out and got a real job. I could have made twice what I'm making right now. That's just pity. You know, regardless of what is causing the shame in my life, I still enjoy self-loathing from time to time. You see, and when we, when we wallow in self-pity, it's just another form of relying on ourselves. It's pride in disguise. And when we tempt, we attempt to buy back our innocence on our own terms, we are diminishing the sacrifice of Christ. When we deny the freedom from guilt and shame that Jesus bought for us, at such a costly sacrifice, we're kind of denying the Lord. See, it's only when we reach the end of our self-reliance and our pride that we can look to the one who actually bore all of our guilt, 
all of our shame. Now see, Peter, he didn't kill himself. He didn't kill himself, but his shame and remorse were still heavy upon his life. In fact, Peter felt like such a failure. He felt like such a failure that he thought it would be a good idea to going back to doing what he used to do really well. I mean, how many of us know that when we feel like failures, we fall back on old behaviors to try to feel good about ourselves? You know, I wonder, I wonder if Peter thought, um, well, I failed in the ministry. I failed at being a disciple. I mean, I denied the one man on this earth that I loved more than any other person. guess I'll just go back to fishing I know how to do that I used to be kind of good at it you know I think we all dream and fantasize about doing old things or other things to cover up our shame and our guilt but it's still pride and so when Peter went back to doing an old thing to cover up a bad thing The surprise was that he had no idea that God was about to do a new thing. In the midst of Peter's failure and shame, God was about to do a new thing. Jesus was about to do a new thing in Peter's life. See, Peter or Jesus was going to give Peter an opportunity at repentance. And in John chapter 21, we see Peter and the disciples went back to doing this old thing. They're fishing. They are going back. We're like, we failed. It's dead. It's over. We messed it up. And they're out fishing, but they're not doing a very good job of it. In fact, they caught nothing the whole night, the Bible tells us. And so as they start to call it quits, uh, this guy on the beach asked them if they caught anything. And they say, nope, nothing. And so the man, he tells them, well, cast your nets over on the other side of the boat. And when they do that, they catch so many fish, they can hardly get it into the shore. And when that happens, the apostle John, the disciple John, tells Peter that it's the Lord. That's Jesus. And when Peter hears that, he puts his coat on and he jumps out of the boat and he swims. He can't wait to get to the shore to meet Jesus. Now again, this was after Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he had been resurrected. And so we read in John about the new thing that Jesus was about to do with Peter. Verse 15 and when they'd finished breakfast, so they came, to, they got to the shore, and they're eating some of this fish they just caught. When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, Lord, you know everything and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So when Jesus was saying, Peter, do you love me? In other words, what Jesus was saying, Peter, do you worship? Do you worship me? He's asking him, Peter, I want to know and I want you to know, did Satan really steal your faith? Did Satan really steal your worship? And Peter says, of course I love you. And then Jesus says, well, then here, guess what? Here's what I'm doing. I'm reinstating you. I'm reinstating you. Here's your kingdom job. You're still my disciple. You're still my friend. And guess what? I'm still building my church on the revelation that was given to you when you said who I was. So go feed my lambs and tend my sheep and feed my sheep. And then Jesus gives Peter this cleansing moment of repentance for the three times he denied knowing the Lord. Remember that? Three times he denied the Lord. And Jesus gave him three opportunities to repent. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. So here's the thing. Whatever your sifting is, if it's your marriage, your life, if it's broken, you don't have to go back to an old thing to medicate or cover up a bad thing. But if you have gone back to an old thing to cover up a bad thing, I want you to know that God is doing a new thing. And it starts with repentance. Do you want your marriage back? It starts with repentance. Do you want your reputation back? It starts with repentance. Do you want your children back? It starts with repentance. Everything new starts with repentance and forgiveness. You see, when Job was sifted by Satan, God wanted to use it as an opportunity to mock the devil. Do you understand that? See, in essence, God was saying, watch, watch this, devil. Watch. Watch Job worship me. Watch Job worship me even when you take everything from him. Watch what he does. I'm slapping you in the face with his worship right now. Get a taste of the backside of my hand, devil. With his worship. And God is saying the same thing about you, and he's saying the same thing about me. Watch my people worship as you try to take everything from them. Watch their faith grow instead of die. When they get sifted, watch it. Watch what's going to happen. These are people of faith. These are people of worship. Go ahead, try to steal the worship. Go ahead, try to steal their faith. I dare you, I'm doing a new thing. In Isaiah 43, it says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Who else feels like they've been in the wilderness? Anyone feel like they've been in the desert? 
Here comes the river. Here comes the way. The path is being cleared for you. Yeah, woo. <laughs> Woohoo to you. Yeet. Not yeep, Eric. It's yeet. Yeet is yes. Yeet is yes. Yeet to the, the river. Yeet to the way in the wilderness. It's not that far from old King James. Yay, yeet. Ye. Ye. Job 8, 7. I mean, this is the Job's story. It says that even though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. That's where you're headed. That is where we are headed. So hold on to this, people. The Lord says, I am praying for you. I know we got a good prayer chain, and I know we got some people who know how to pray, and I know we love each other praying for each other, but man, you got someone who knows how to pray. A man who every word that comes out of his mouth is answered the moment it comes out. He is praying for us. He is the one who's interceding for you right now that your faith is going to grow through this moment. Your faith is going to expand. Your worship is going to get deeper. It's going to get wider. It's going to get bigger. Your problem is not going to be forever because you're not going to stay in shame. You're not going to camp out at remorse and be in pride with your self-pity. You're going to repent and get back into the plan of God. Does anyone believe that? Does anyone believe that? This is what I want you to do. So take your picture, write it down if you're a touchy-feely learner. This is the action plan. Number one, recognize that the sifting is trying to steal your faith and your worship. It's the first thing we've got to do. You've got to understand what's at stake here. Number two, stop hiding from people and confess your biggest shame to someone else. Yes, go ahead and talk to your spouse about it. Talk to your family, your blood, whatever is easy and convenient, but talk to someone else. Share it with someone else. Number three, identify the old things you're doing to cover up the bad things. You know, no more of this. I'm going to fix this myself. I don't need anyone's help. I'm going to buy back my innocence. And then number four, repent for pride, self-pity, self-loathing, and, turn, and for turning to the old things. Number five, repent for the sin or failure that came as a result of the sifting. Repent to someone. I know we love to do this in our head all by ourselves, but you need to talk to someone and say, Father, I repent. Number six, ask God for the new thing he wants to do in your life to restore you and make your latter days great. So write it down, snap a picture, and here's, the, here's what I want to do, and I know today's Connect Group Day, so this will be good if you don't have a plan already. I do, I'm asking our connect group pastors to discuss this with your groups. To help your people walk this plan out. 
Because your connect group is the very best place to walk this out. And if you don't belong to a connect group, reach out to Jeff and Michelle Hughes. Raise your hands. Jeff and Michelle Hughes, they will hook you up. Now, I know some of you may say that I've been repenting, Tom. We've been talking about it Sunday after Sunday. I know that we all, to some degree, have done this. But starting next week, I'm going to start a new series on how to save and resurrect a marriage. And I'm starting with a very biblical look at what real repentance looks like. So even if you're not married, you need to be here next week. Because we are going to learn some really powerful stuff about what repentance really looks like. It's not just feeling sorry. It's not just you just talking about what you did bad. That isn't just repentance. So if you would put some music on and we're just going to end in prayer. I'm going to have the altar team come up, the prophetic team. I know we went over. I'm sorry. But I know we're in crisis. I know many people are in crisis. They're in a sifting. They're in a valley. They're in whatever you want to call it. And so after I pray, if you want to get a jump start on confessing your shame, confessing your sin, you can come up to one of these altar team members and just begin to pour out your confession. Just begin to pour out your heart. So let's just pray with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you, God, for, for the stories of, of the disciples and the men in the Bible and the women in the Bible, God, and how they handled their own sifting, God. We thank you for the words of your Bible and your book. Now, God, I'm praying now that this would inspire us, Lord, to, to go out of shame out from remorse and into repentance, God. We break pride, our agreement with pride right now in the name of Jesus. God, we break agreement with shame in the name of Jesus. You know, the, the right way to deal with shame is not pride. I'm not going to feel shame. That is not the right way to deal with pride. Repentance is the way to deal with shame. So, Father, I pray right now that we break our agreement with shame, we break our agreement with pride, and that, God, you would... Offer us a spirit of repentance to fall upon our hearts today, God. Today and for the days to come in this week as we, every one of us, go to someone else and say, here's my biggest shame in my life. Here's what I feel shame for so much, so much. God, I pray that we would have the courage to do that, to confess it, to get it in the open so that we can get prayer and encouragement from the Word and from the Lord. We thank you, God, that faith and worship will not be stolen from this house. It will not be stolen from me. It will not be stolen from this family, God. And we just declare that we are a people of faith. We are a people of worship. And we love you today, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence today and the breakthrough you've already started. Let the new thing come, God. We are not going to cover up an old thing with a bad thing. We are into the new thing. The new thing that you're birthing in this house today, Father. We love you, God. We give you praise. 
we bless you in the name of Jesus. And everyone says, amen. amen.